Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. Thanks for joining us. This is your host, Lucian. And again, joining me is Colin Couchet. Say hello, Colin. Hello, Colin. How's it going? <laughs> it's going well. Yeah? What you been up to lately? Anything fun uh, you can talk about? Uh, I've spent a lot of time basically learning fundamentals. I'm basically reading my way through another cryptography textbook. This one with greater level of detail and more math. <laughs> oh, fun stuff. Yeah, man. I, I, I've been talking to you a lot lately and it uh, seems like you're really getting into that side of things. So yeah, that's cool. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, I'm, I've got an announcement that's going to be coming up. I'm just not ready to give it yet, but uh, I did accept another job, a new uh, job offer. So pretty stoked about Congrats. that. Congrats. Yeah. yeah, I'm not going to push you on it until uh, you're ready to talk about it, but it is definitely exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting for me. So yeah, awesome. uh, so what's the topic for discussion this week? This week we're talking about the new release of Geth, the Go implementation of Ethereum. We're on version 1.90. How long did and it take for this version to come out? I feel like we've been on 1.8 for a long time. Yeah, they mentioned that it was over six months of development that went into this. That's good. Yeah. Okay, cool. And there is one point that I have to bring up because I follow crypto Twitter, unfortunately. I know. I, I feel bad for myself, too, admitting <laughs> that. But um, apparently it is important to note that making incremental improvements on the existing Ethereum client is still an important thing to do. <laughs> there are actually some people who don't understand why people are still working on improving the first and current version of Ethereum. Have you heard about Wait. this? People no, are actually making the argument that like you shouldn't we shouldn't be working on the current version of ethereum and that we should focus entirely on ethereum 2.0 and everything else is like a waste quote <laughs> uh, but people are still using ethereum and, and ethereum 2.0 won't go faster just because we move all the resources onto ethereum 2.0 right that, that makes no that makes no pardon my french it makes no fucking sense so yeah uh Whoever's saying that has never built a software project in their life. Uh, or never finished I, I, building a software project. Or, yeah, never, <laughs> never built an enterprise level or anything that's supporting something that actually has like value to other people than yourself. You know what I mean? Like, there right. are people who depend on Geth. Get, you know, there are people that depend on this environment continuing to push forward. And yeah, it doesn't stop just because you got a cool research project. Right. Um, and that's a I depend on Geth. It still is, you know? So. Right. Uh, no, no to that. I'm sorry, no. And and not only that, but you've got a whole other client that's kind of in competition with Ethereum, the the Geth implementation that's doing stuff that you know you need to kind of keep pace with. Uh, that being the Parity client. So you know, no, I'm sorry. That's whoever who said that. I want to know. Like call outs. Let's do a call out here. Who said that? I'll call them out on Twitter. And... Oh, you don't want to call them out on the podcast. Well, I mean, I history? don't remember their name. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I don't keep track of that. <laughs> I feel like that's just a juvenile approach. Like, I, you can do both. Like, God. All right. Yeah, anyway. especially because piling on more developers into Ethereum 2.0 development isn't going to make it go faster. There are already nine implementation teams. It is already a coordination problem to get all of these implement implementation teams to actually work on the same specification. Especially uh, since they're globally freaking distributed, which makes management of them hard. Hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard to manage a report. To, uh, like like pms who can manage like a globally distributed like team with across you know the globe and both hemispheres like that's difficult like it is it is uh, there yeah. is no pm for eth 2.0 really well i yeah. mean 
you got a bunch of individual projects. Like I know Prismatic Labs is building their own individual version. Status is building yes. Nimbus. Right. Um, but and then they have know, to integrate it. <laughs> that, yeah, I feel like they're all just test research projects at this point still, though. Like they're, they're nobody has like a full like full phase zero implementation yet, do they? Oh, they do. Yeah. Oh, they do. Oh, mm -hmm. cool. And they've How's started actually integrating them. Oh, neat. Yeah. Okay. They've actually cool. been able to successfully integrate a couple of the clients. Aren't we talking? Didn't they just recently say they're probably going to push back phase zero, or is that phase one? Uh, phase zero, but the phase zero spec freeze is already implemented, and no, they didn't say that they're going to push it back yet. Oh, I thought I read people were saying that they were afraid it was going to get pushed back because of coordination problems. Uh, yep. See, coordination problems. Uh, yeah. I swear, you know, people people look down on management and meetings and stuff, and I understand why because when when your passion is coding, doing anything that's non-coding seems like a chore. But you're actually just manufacturing more work for yourself, like. Coordination is the most important part. Um, otherwise, everybody's just moving in their own direction, and then just it's an absolute uh, fluster cuck when you know you try and bring them all back together. But anyway, uh, yeah. I could go on about that and wax stories about that for a while. But um, let's get back on Geth. So they're uh, we're going ahead with continuing to improve Geth, guys. Um, and I don't know whoever questioned that in the first place. Seriously, so, I, I don't know if they were serious or they were being obnoxious, but anyways, uh, back to software that people gonna, actually use currently. <laughs> this is the thing that's, that's interesting to me. It's like we got F1.0 coming out. I mean, I mean sorry, F2.0 coming out. Would Geth 2.0 be implementing F2.0? So I don't think so. You don't think so? So it's probably going to be a so. whole new set of clients for Get F 2.0. Yeah. And okay. there's like currently a, that's why there's nine implementations. There's currently like a minor competition to like become the standard of the new client implementation, which is really cool for the open source software community and the fact that people are self-motivated to form teams, quit their day jobs, have yep. Vitalik airdrop a thousand ether over Twitter <laughs> to Prismatic yep. Labs. Uh, it it's really cool that this is happening, but it also seems that um, you can't both work on Geth 1.0, maintain and improve it, and implement the uh, unfinished Geth 2.0 uh -huh. spec. Uh -huh. Right, so um, it's also that backwards compatibility is going to be completely broken um, in terms of full usability yeah. of Ethereum 2.0 we're talking about a time frame of about two years yeah right that's true but um, backwards compatibility is not going to be broken I mean Geth probably every, will. every every F2.0 client needs well as far as maybe smart contracts they know they're trying to switch to you awesome well possibly right. they don't know um, yeah but like uh that's on F2.0, but there's still the F1.0 chain. That's not going away anytime soon. No, but they haven't decided on how they're going to maintain that chain. It's like I some mean, people are arguing that it should be on its own shard, um, and it should have like the full history on a separate shard um, with special characteristics. Regardless, it's there's also the idea that you're going to essentially deposit your ETH 1.0 into yeah. an ETH 2.0. It's a burn. Um, like you, you move all burn. your stuff over. Yeah, it's a burn. Yeah, yeah. and speaking so like of ETH 1.0 will continue to work. It's just like ETH 2.0 will assume slowly start to assume the ETH 1.0 funds. So they're actually opening deposits into the ETH 2.0 staking contract as soon as DevCon, which is October eighth uh, of this year. Which is interesting. I mean, I don't know what the actual incentives are to stake your ether to become um, a validator on the network this uh, early, especially. Uh -huh. It's yeah. like essentially locking up your ether. Um, but that is definitely something to look forward to. Um, and it's going to lock up close to 2% of all total ether um, before... Wow. It's going to lock up about at least two percent of all total ether. Um, well, yeah, but why? October uh, of this year. Anyway, that's that's another that's another that's another d discussion topic. It I is, think. yeah. Um, I I really feel like there's there's so many 
It's so unclear what's going on with these 2.0 to me. And we've been trying to grok it since day one. And I know that there's people on the inside who have better clarity than I, I do. And I'm not as deep in that space anymore. So it's kind of like hard for me to like to, to catch up all the time. Um, but you know, it, it seems like it seems like there's you're right. There's no value in just like locking it up right now. Uh, it's I mean, oh well, that also brings me to like another like kind of question. Since we are on the topic of like developing Geth and stuff, um, what do you think about this this EIP that's been floating around uh, two something two twenty two hundred and two thousand two hundred something twenty five? I think. Well, is it twenty five? I wanted to say that, but I wasn't sure. It's it's, it's yeah. It's uh, I think it's dead on arrival, and yeah. I not really that interesting. Well, do you want to tell them what it is then? <laughs> yeah, essentially people wanted, so um, someone proposed that a specific percentage of 6%. inflation uh, be added to the mining rewards as a developer reward for the maintenance of Ethereum 1.x. Um, that's it. It's that's like, I mean, you can, you can propose anything in an ethereum improvement protocol um but i heard it was getting some traction from certain people um I maybe maybe that's blown heard up it was dead on arrival i haven't actually so. heard anyone publicly support it um mm. but the idea is that like zcash does they have a percentage of mining rewards go to development costs and it maintains essentially the um salaries of developers that are building the core client um, okay. Ethereum has several existing funding sources to maintain uh, core development so the fact that Ethereum was actually pre-mined and the Ethereum foundation had 700 million dollars worth of uh, crypto still in its war chest um, basically indicates that this isn't currently necessary unless I understand something um, unless something drastic has changed. Honestly, like in my opinion, the Ethereum Foundation could be spending money faster. Um, and yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I feel like I feel like they, that might be some somebody's passive aggressive way of asking for a raise. Um, anyway. Uh... <laughs> oh yeah, you won't yeah. give me the raise. Well, I'm gonna put this EIP in so you can fuck me now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, the aggressive, aggressive response is telling them to fork off. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> F-O-R-K. Please don't censor that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, the Oh, wait, is there censorship here? Like, <laughs> no, oh, this there's is a not. It's, it's all self-censorship. We're censorship resistant here. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, cool. So I can curse all that I want. What what curse words am I not allowed to say on this program? Just say Look them up for the me. seven... Dirty words you're not allowed to say on television, um, oh. and then update it for this day and age. Ah, <laughs> uh, wow! Yes. That, so basically, the entirety of Urban Dictionary. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So moving on to Geth one point nine, which we promised. Pull me through this, man. What do, what do you what do, what do you want to talk about first? So the most important is essentially the fact that the database schema has been fundamentally changed. Parity had a better performance in terms of the total size of the database mm -hmm. um, for pretty much up until this release. And uh, due to some of the improvements that they've made, they've actually reduced the size of the database that's stored on disk. Um, there's a couple trade-offs on how this was achieved, but mainly um, it's dependent on what type of node that you are running. And um, for example, if you are running a full sync, um, then there are actually more read and writes to the um, disk. And this is mainly because of some changes in how they actually interact with the level DB. Um, oh. So there are some performance improvements. But before we jump into the performance improvements, the first thing that I have to note is that the benchmarks are actually made with incredibly powerful machines. This is like an AWS EC2 yeah. instance that uses eight cores. Yeah, 61 gigabytes of RAM, which I had to check because that's, that's a lot of RAM. <laughs> and then a 1.9 terabyte SSD with NVMe connection. 
And a full sync now takes um, four hours and eight minutes. Sorry, a fast sync takes four hours and eight minutes, which is a substantial improvement in time um, from the previous time. And a full sync takes approximately the same as it used to with uh, six days, eight hours, and seven minutes. And again, this is with a very fast AWS instance, which typically has a much better and faster internet connection than anyone's home internet. Um, So the benefits of performance are essentially that the total size of the chain data has been reduced. And to achieve this, they've actually changed the way they actually read and write uh, data onto disk in like a very fundamental way. They actually created something called the freezer. They split up their database into what is called like ancient data. (laughs) And they actually have a folder called ancient that keeps data that you could safely uh, store on a um, hard drive, like Uh an HDD hard drive. And then they have an actual state database. Um, So the split of the uh, new database structures is like 80 gigabytes in the ancient subfolder and about 60 gigabytes in the SSD. So now you could actually use less local SSD uh, and rely on an ancient data. uh, Sorry, rely on uh, an HD Right. This allows them to sort of like front load onto the SSD and then move it into archives too, which could be on a, right. a regular regular you know, spinning disk if you want. Um, yep. It could be a tape. Who cares? And that, that batch process is a lot faster than constantly switching contexts. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I want to go back to a point you made about the benchmark and the size of the benchmarks. Like, you know why they do that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's because people want to know when you do a benchmark, you want to test on what is the ideal. In other words, you want to say, if you need this, this is this is as hard as you can push it, and this is where it'll go, right? To any reasonable degree, right? Um, so for the fast sync and the full sync, first off, I want to say the sync time on fast sync has been reduced by more than half, which is dope. Like fast sync is now down from 11 hours and 20 minutes for a fast sync. It's down to four hours and eight minutes. That's awesome. As much as the disk size decrease is, is cool, the disk size decrease is about 40 megabytes, uh, sorry, 40 gigabytes of disk size is decreased. So from 176 gigabytes to 131 gigabytes, um, the fast sync is down to 4.8 hours, four hours and eight minutes. Um, that's uh, from, from 11 hours to 20 minutes, that's a huge improvement. Um, that makes it cross into the viable range for a lot of, new types of uh, different types of applications that it probably wasn't as viable for before um meanwhile for the the full sync it's pretty much on par there's a little bit of difference and all they did is change the disk size so again the disk size difference is about 40 gigabytes um uh so it's a little it's 40 gigabytes smaller in 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 size on the new version and get 1.9 um but they've only reduced the uh sync time by uh uh seven hours it looks like so that's okay, but when you consider that it still takes six days, uh, that seven hours is not as big a deal as the 11 hours and 20 minutes to four hours and eight minutes. But what's really interesting, and this is the part that I really think is, is, is so I've gotten this unreasonable gripe several times from people who are like, I can't run an archive node in Ethereum, blah, blah, blah. It's not really decentralized, blah, blah, blah. I want to run a full archive node. Okay, first off, no, you don't. You're full of shit. Um, but yeah, are you are you really you are, setting up your own like digits. block explorer? Why do you need it? The reason they do they they want that is because they think they need it. It's like it's it's the it, I, I I'm trying to think of a good comparison and like like non technical words. You know, it's almost like a keeping up with the Joneses thing, but it's not. I don't know how to put it. No, the best reason is that they want to find a reason to basically diminish the scalability discussion on Ethereum. The most famous is probably Stop and Decrypt on Twitter because he published this article about how Ethereum essentially is doomed to fail because it is going to be impossible to uh, grow the throughput without like 
losing the ability for any individual person to uh, run a node that validates the entire system. And his argument is that because no individual can independently validate the entire system, then all of Ethereum is untrustworthy because you don't have the trustless yeah, assumption. That uh, is hey, basically off, his is argument in a nutshell. Yeah, that's I know. Because first off, you only need to care from the point when you deploy something forward. Like you just don't, like so if I deploy a contract, I don't have any history I need to verify through the archive, do I? Like what am yeah, I looking well, at here? Am I looking in at the Bitcoin it? context, I mean, I guess maybe you're talking about tokening, token description. Like, but like, it's. I mean, we all know why these. these are if you do, bad, if but... you do a one to zero comparison on the security model between uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, because Bitcoin's a UTXO model, you essentially have to rerun the entire data structure to make sure that unspent UTXOs are still there. Period. Yep. Like that's the only reason that they make this argument. So if you take that analogy from Bitcoin and you apply it to an account-based system like Ethereum, then what you're saying is that I don't trust any of the state. I don't trust anyone else on the network. I want to independently validate everything. And then for some reason, you also want to keep every single transaction data. <laughs> I don't know why you would need to, unless again, you are literally running a block explorer and you could... <laughs> have to bring up some random person's data for some odd reason, then maybe you have to run an archive node. But anyway, right, well, well, we're on a tangent again because we're really yeah. talking about GEP 1.9. And by the way, we have Martin Sweet, uh, uh, Swen, Swendy. Actually, I never heard his name pronounced. Is it Swendy? Like Martin? It's Swedish, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Swendy? I don't, I don't know, man. Uh, and then Peter, uh, are uh, are going to be on the program. Uh, uh, for hashing it out this week. So, um, yeah, we're going to be covering Geth 1.9 as well on that program. So Swende he, sounds, looks right the way you yeah. pronounce it, but ask, make sure to ask him. <laughs> also, I so, don't know how to pronounce Peter's last name either, but I would Or like his to first learn. name. He's got, he's got some <laughs> cool characters. Yeah, uh, and, and these are American core developers of uh, the Ethereum client. Yeah, uh, we've interviewed Peter before. He's a really great guy. Um, uh, so uh, anyway, I want to get back to just the too long didn't read to the archive sync. Yeah, this size has been decreased, blah, blah, blah. But the sync time has gone from 62, uh, 62 days and four hours to 13 days and 19 hours. So even if you want to bitch about how impossible it is to get an archive node going on Ethereum, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, now it's, 60, it's gone down from 62 days and four hours to 13 days and 19 hours. That's awesome. Yes. And, so, and there's an asterisk with that time that says essentially that they're using um, an EBS SSD, which is much slower than a real SSD on physical hardware. So in practice, you can actually get benchmarks that are much slower than that if you run it locally. And they're not using 61 gigabytes of RAM, as was the case in previous uh, in the previous benchmarks they're using only 32 gigabytes of ram and three terabytes of ebs ssd storage which again so by the way the whole archive node will fit in under three gigabytes like yes. three terabytes like that's that's like and i'm saying under because it's actually it's currently you know many hundreds of gigabytes lower than that but i mean like it's important to to say like you're we're still not even at the three terabyte mark yet we're at two point uh, three two uh, terabytes of data. Like we've got a, we 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 are we have got some time ahead of us before we even cross that threshold. So there will be a point, I would think, when people are starting to complain about the size of disks required to even do archive notes. Oh well, you can't even store it all on one disk or blah blah blah. Like we're not even close to there yet. So like we're 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 fine. Like this is this is a good good space to be in. Um, uh, I think uh, I think the archive note bringing that down to 13 days and 19 hours is a good thing because it will shut up certain people that are probably going to find other things to bitch about anyway. All right, yeah. so back on to so oh, also yeah. check the current costs of hardware-based SSDs because they are a lot lower than you remember them. <laughs> I just bought a, a um, terabyte for like 65 bucks. Yeah. Oh, uh, SSD or HDD? S SSD. Oh, damn it. You got a better deal than I did. <laughs> I, went, I went to Micro Center, and they have their own Micro Center brand stuff. Maybe, maybe it was a little more than that. I can't remember now. Yeah. Um, but it, it was about in that ballpark. It was less than 100 bucks. Um, yeah, I paid about terabyte. 90 for mine. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, maybe it was like 85 then. 
Um, but uh, yeah, it was like it was Micro Center brand, and it was just like, yeah, okay. Well, what? And I would look at these other things, like like the Samsung ones. They actually had worse stats than the Micro Center brand. I'm like, why? Why is this one better than hmm. like the Samsung one? And he's like, I don't know. Uh, so I can't tell you that one's got a brand name on it. I'm like, okay. Well, my only concern is that maybe the Microsoft brand came from a manufacturer who might not have a, a, the best, you know, reputation of quality assurance checking or something like that. Right. I don't. I don't really care though. I mean, that my hard drive went out and for eighty, you know, let's just say eighty five bucks. Maybe that that actually sounds more reasonable. It probably was that. Um, the uh, the um, you know, I swapped it out. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's it's great. Uh, anyway, um, the only problem is I don't have that many slots, but I, which I can put it in. So it's not like I can run an array of <laughs> SSDs on my laptop. But you know, um, okay. So moving on to Gef uh, Gef one point nine. Man, we can really go on tangents totally. Um, yeah, freezer. I mean, essentially that's the whole idea behind uh, a version update. It's like, how do we actually use this software, right? Because this is I use Gef basically on a daily basis right um, so most of these tangents are essentially how we actually interact with it and how we use it yeah, um, yep, yep. so speaking of something that might fundamentally change the way we actually interact with geth it's that they added a graphql querying layer and oh, yeah. i'm actually super excited about this like i used graphql in a build uh, about like a year and a half ago and I essentially had to build an indexing uh, system in which basically I had to set up an API in a backend in which I saved data coming off of uh, the blockchain and then I had to query it with GraphQL. But I wonder if that GraphQL um, layer essentially allows for a front end to request data in an already structured and efficient way directly from a geth node. And if it eliminates the entire need for developing like indexed databases um, that run in parallel to your geth node so that your front end could serve data quickly um, and efficiently okay. in a way that it's like makes sense for your application. Well, that was my takeaway from what they said, right? Like you yeah. can run it with, you could just run a query on it and it'll pull out the event information even. So that was one of the things that was really annoying to me is just like being able to like cross relate data and have to hit the chain like several times um, just to read the chain data and then pull it out and blah, blah, blah. So I'd have to take all these like several hits when I, I just wanted a database model. Like I'm used to dealing with databases with an excess of a hundred tables, right? So I have this database with a hundred tables. I want to go, okay. Uh, give me data from this table, this table, this table, this table, this table, correlate them this way, and give me one output result. And I'll process that and put yeah. that load on that software because that software is very good at that. And if I were to rebuild my own software, that opens me up to new types of bugs and different kinds of stuff. So I'd lean on SQL very hard. Um, and so like GraphQL is similar to that, only with JSON data, basically. Um, and instead of like structured data, it's kind of more unstructured data. From what I understand, I've never used it. I've read about it a long time ago, but I've not touched it. Uh, very much, um, and you know, it basically allows you to correlate, make those correlations. Is that correct? Like, is that my understanding GraphQL correctly? A good way to explain GraphQL is that um, everything is a post request, and I mean, it's not. It's an it API. doesn't work the same. It doesn't work the same way, but you can essentially think of it as everything is a post request in which you specify the data structure that you need returned, and you specify your authentication to be able to access it. So it's both more secure than like actually the traditional uh, HTTP client server architecture, but also um, it is very specific. Right, because the front end can custom tailor the structure of the responses that they expect, and it's the back end's right. responsibility to essentially form the data in a way right. that is convenient for it. Um, so it's basically, yeah. like a SQL database, like like my SQL manages all like the data, or let's just say it takes the data that somebody else manages. Even. Right, it's it's able to read that data, but index it in a way that you can actually like do uh, relational. Uh, queries on it, which is the thing that's kind of been missing from a lot of the stuff I've dealt with with, um, you know, uh, JSON databases in the past. They've not been quite relational to the degree I want. GraphQL kind of like handles that for you in an efficient way, in a kind of almost a standard way, 
mm-hmm. and since all the data on on and this stuff is kind of stored in a way that GraphQL can index, um, I could just say, hey, give me all events um, that are that relate uh, to this address, mm-hmm. and on you can give a block time range, and you can essentially filter your queries from inside the original call, and it yeah. structures it for you in a in a way that you essentially request. But I could do it for multiple contracts too. So I could be right. Yep. So I can oh, go. and you know what the best part is actually that we haven't even mentioned? It's the fact that they have a, a built-in subscription system. Okay. So you so you, you no more subscribe for updates. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, because I hated that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Waiting for every block great. update, oh. and then you trigger new calls based on like every yeah. block. So then you end up like just spamming your internal geth node with like. What block is it? This one? What block is it now? This one? <laughs> yeah, because that yeah, there was yeah. If they got so they got black, they actually got black triggers. So you can subscribe to a block. It'll do a broadcast. It'll do a push to your to your local mm-hmm. system. You you just say hey, new box open. Oh sweet, nice. So yeah. you just activate a listener, and then that listener will uh, eventually get a ping back, and you go oh hey, I got a got a thing. That's what yeah. That's more that liveness is what I need. So. It's That's even better, great. though, because you don't actually have to subscribe to new blocks. You could subscribe to new yeah. events linked to your address. Yep. Can you attach a GraphQL query sweet. with it? What do you can mean? I, can, I, can I say, um, on this event, execute this GraphQL query? Or do I have to manually do that sort of stuff? Um, you, I don't know if they actually... Because the way that I built it, I triggers. used something called the Apollo client. Um, which is essentially like, I don't know, um, a wrapper for Node.js backend. Mm-hmm. So essentially, whenever you would um, set it up, you would set it up so that it would update. It's like um, the front end has to subscribe for updates for something, mm-hmm. but the back end also has to be set up for it too. Um, so it depends on the specific implementation of how they uh, built it, but. Uh, from what I read in this blog post, I am leaning towards the fact that they definitely uh, allow you to subscribe for events because that's the example that they gave. Oh, and there's also a um, a GraphQL Explorer, which allows you to test this locally. So if you're running a geth node, you could also use a graphic user interface that shows you what the feedback and what the structure of the data returned by GraphQL is, so you could actually like prototype what your query will look like in this graphic user interface, and you could also test out the subscriptions and see how the updates would uh, show up on a on a GUI, essentially. How how can um, this assist with debugging? How can this assist with debugging? Does it capture well, like? Debug info on your node, like if you try and execute something and it fails, it'll give you the code back. And like, like a lot of the problems I have is like a lot of that's dumped to log, um, right. you know, stuff that, and that's annoying to parse and understand. And and sometimes you rely on third-party tools, which interpret that a little differently depending on which tool you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if this well, is the explorer the... is actually like native to GraphQL, mm. and. Um, it has some functionalities that help with debugging, but honestly, I don't remember it. Um, so that's something that I, I really want is like the best, better debugging in Geth. Like, um, it's very right. entry to people if they can't interpret their bugs. Like the bugs are valid, and yes, it's reporting them, but if they can't understand what they're reading, or they have no way of linking back to something that would help them understand it, it becomes very difficult for people to break into the industry, especially when they don't have the full context of years of reading about it, like like some of us do. And we want yeah. developers, we want people touching this. So um, debugging's been kind of something that I really wanted. I was hoping this would be able to parse those debugging errors too and, and report them back in some way because, um, I don't know, just the current interfaces for that are just not, not very clean. Yeah, I'm not sure how that will affect it. Again, that's something I'd have to like literally put my hands on in order to figure out. Um, You're still running... I, I know exactly what you mean, because yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's there's just some uh, some things that get buried because of how big the technology stack is with Ethereum that you don't know where exactly the problem's going wrong. So it's like 
oh, am I like not properly communicating with the rest of the Ethereum network? And is that causing the bug to, is it something specifically that's within like my front end code? And that's like a huge range of things, right? Like, is it the yeah. protocol that I'm messing up or is it the actual like front end displaying of data that I'm messing up? Um, it's hard yeah. to and I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure well, it's going to help, but. Yeah, um, I mean, you could, they could, somebody could build a custom like GraphQL Query mod like query model I guess is it called a model in GraphQL I can't remember um, that would be able to translate errors into something more and that'd be a little more iterable iterable than updating the get client to translate the errors if that makes sense I mean mm -hmm. they can they can you can just update your query models to interpret your errors and and your and trace trace your you know your problems uh, but I don't yeah. know if that's even possible it's just a thought anyway uh, so let's move on to hardware wallets um, yep. So uh, it looks like they are adding. So we've already supported Ledger Nano X because so Ledger Nano X is now available. That's good. That that was recently released. Um, some Trezor wallets are going to be available. I think what's cool is that the status key card, um, which also is compatible with the Grid Plus key card, right? From yep. the last episode you had. Yes. Um, so they are going to be. Um, they're going to be enabled so that you can actually uh, support them on. Uh, they're going to natively support it in Geth, the Geth client. I'm not sure what that yeah. really means, to be honest with you. Uh, but uh, so I actually read through it, and yeah. essentially, it is to be able to load the accounts that are within your hardware wallet. Mm -hmm. um, into the actual account model that is built into Geth, oh, if that makes but sense. But only if it's plugged in? Yeah. You can, you can use the card to sign, basically. You can, yes. Okay, so that's basically what I say. So instead of having to have the, the PK like locally on your machine, you can instead right. have it on the card. It will know how to find it, identify it, and use it. Right. Okay, cool. I yeah, that. I bet that is very useful for people yeah. who manage smart contracts that are controlled by, um, that control a large amount of money, because any type of interface becomes a potential liability. Um, for my basic transactional needs, I still use my crypto. Uh -huh. um, the graphic user interface for me isn't like, it's basically sandboxed within an Electron app that's running locally on my desktop. Um, if I want a higher level of security, then I just run a geth node locally, and mm -hmm. that essentially is a higher level of security. But I've never actually used the um, account CLI in geth on mainnet because I feel like I would rather have the assurance that I properly formed a transaction when I'm spending actual money that comes back in the form of feedback from a, a graphic user interface that I could check than it does in, uh, yeah, like that's, that's just the way that I've been using Geth. Um, but this also kind of relates to another uh, larger change in the code base, although I'm not going to fully go into detail regarding it because it's a little uh, complicated clef. It, they've essentially broken out um, pieces and functionality of the core Ethereum protocol into, um, how can I say it, like composable pieces. They've built in more functionality into the core Ethereum protocol, essentially. And one of them is called 4-byte, which I thought is pretty cool. Basically, it takes the first four bytes of an ABI, which is essentially the contract interface that you're calling, and um, it uses that to guess what the rest of the data within the uh, data field that you're about to sign represents. So this is essentially a way for you to be able to read what you're signing in a non-machine readable way. What? <laughs> so what do you saying? remember how you were saying that um, you prefer a, uh, what was it, like a non-compiled language for your smart contract so that you know what you're signing? Yeah. 
Okay, well, in Ethereum, it's a compiled language. So what they what four byte does is it takes the first four bytes oh, okay, of sure. the data and then it predicts essentially what the uh, the interface of this contract is, mm -hmm. right? And then it fills in the data in a structured way so that it gives you some context. And on top of that, it actually gives you a warning if it looks like either the function name or the structure isn't as you would expect it. So why do you think that the that the first four bytes would work? Um, so the function name shouldn't be in the in the in the bytecode. What is in the first four bytes which enable them to uniquely fingerprint, which is what they've done? It's almost like to me you would need the first four bytes and the last four bytes. Uh, to, well, I guess you don't really like what is unique about the first four bytes of the of the bytecode of a, So of a it's not. So the ABI itself is what, did, what is a, the data that's contained there? It's like ABI. Oh, so it's the actual ABI itself. Yes. Well, if you have the ABI, why do you need to look at? Because you need it in a human readable way, so that you know what kind of contract you're interacting with. Well, the ABIs are pretty human readable, aren't they? That's the point. No, the ABI is not human readable when it's already um, compiled. Well, the contract's compiled to bytecode, which is stored on the on the thing. The bytecode yes. is contained somewhere in the ABI, but the ABI itself has the inter is a JSON file which has the interface. Right, but it... that's not actually what you sign. Does that make sense? No. Okay, you so you actually so you actually sign bytecode, right? Yeah. Yeah. The ABI is not actually the human readable bytecode. It is the compiled bytecode. So what you do, they have this in uh, Etherscan, for example. So you have a, a contract, and then you have the compiled um, version of the bytecode. And then you basically have a, quote, best guess of what the actual schema looks like and what data is contained in it. And it breaks apart the, um, the already compiled bytecode into something that is human readable. Does it make okay. sense? No, because ABIs are human readable. Like I can look they're at not. an ABI and, and not after they're compiled into bytecode. So the idea is is that you don't necessarily know what you're signing in in bytecode. So if you Why use the go that's ahead. the part that I don't recall ever compiling an ABI to bytecode. ABIs are are a definition. Like this is the the schema of right. the smart contract. It's used to interpret the bytecode, right? Um, it is used to interpret the bytecode. So you're saying that the yeah. ABI itself is actually the human readable part. Well, I'm. It's saying... not fully human readable, but it's like it's. I mean, it's not the actual contract itself. But this is this is what this is how the the contract is structured. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah, but like the. The data itself is in the form of binary data. Yes. Right. So yes. for you to be able to interact with the contract, you essentially need the ABI format. Right. right. So here, like, look, this is this is this is what uh, this is what and uh, put it in free inside. So like, this is what an ABI looks like, man. Like, you know, I mean, I, th I think you know this. I think we're talking past each other. Because like right. that's 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 just the problem we're going to clear up right now, uh, get common language and and move forward. Uh, is um, oh come on, I don't know why Windows some I'm on a Windows machine. I don't know why it sometimes takes so long to open the downloads folder. There we go. Um, so you see that like that's the ABI up there at the top where it says right next to parse, um, enter your contract. Like that is human readable. Like you know what this tells you how. Okay, contracted. so do you see that number at the very bottom? Yes. That's actually what goes into a transaction. Yes, I know that. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. You need yes. something that goes backwards. Oh, so you want to discover the ABI from the part that goes into the actual transaction. Yes. I see. So when you said the first so four bytes of the ABI, the I'm like, bytes. no, the first five bytes of the ABI would be those four characters, open bracket, you know, open square, open bracket, open quote, and a C. Like that would be like the first four bytes. Um, but you're actually saying the first uh, 
um, the, the first, well... I, so four bytes is... So I'll read from the blog post. The solution of the Ethereum community was to assemble a four-byte database so that by looking at the first four bytes of the above data, which is the compiled um, ABI, you oh. can guess what the rest of the data is meant to represent, and you can thus show the user a meaningful dump of what they are about to confirm. Okay. And yep. it's essentially it's essentially what you showed me, where you take an ABI and then you yep. compile it down, um, and then it's in an encoded format. It's an encoded ABI, right? Essentially, it's the reverse. How do you take the encoded format and make sure that it's correctly structured in um, in a format well, well, that you can understand? Yeah. So you're, that's not an encoded ABI, though. That is the transaction data. So it takes trans. It takes the actual data that you're signing. Like, so look. It, yes. It makes so sure that you are signing the correct data. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, but yeah, but the ABI is not something you compile and send to the blockchain. Like, you send a a request and that's uh, anyway I, I get it i get what you're trying to say okay cool semantics um, <laughs> yeah well i mean it makes a difference when i'm here in like compiling abi i'm like you never compile an abi you you can take you can create an abi from the source code um but you, you know the abi is basically like an api where you have to say these are the calls i need the abi is right. a definition for those calls kind of like you'd see on like swagger right. abi is the same thing it's just a file that says hey this is this is how you call this is how, how you work with this. The actual transaction data that you send over, that's the part that they're actually taking the first four bytes of. Now, I'm yeah. actually still confused. Um, so my question never actually got answered, but maybe sure. I can ask them on the next interview. Um, sure. What are the four bytes that you're using? Um, you say it's the first, but like for instance, in this, in, this, in this example, yeah, in this yeah. example, like the Looking first four bytes the examples, are all zeros. It's not the first four bytes. I don't no. know. I don't know yeah. which ones. But apparently it's something that uh, people like Etherscan have implemented. And I've always wondered how, like, if you've ever looked at a uh, smart contract on a block explorer, you're like, hmm, how do they get, like, the actual schema of it from the data that's on chain? Because it's actually really, really difficult um, to get, essentially, this, the code that has been compiled and deployed on chain unless someone actually provides the code. Um, a lot of people, I think, way, do. Sorry? I don't think it's uncommon for people to do that. Um, people do actually provide the code. Yeah, it's anyways. actually better for them because they could say, hey, this is... Yeah, check our code. Yeah, yeah check our code. But like, essentially, it, it's requ it requires them to share their code. So if yeah. someone is being malicious and they want you to sign something, then you need something like this essentially to guarantee that like oh i'm trying to sign a multi-sig contract but this is not that <laughs> right right yeah um so that is Ooh. one of the interesting things and it's also very uh, interesting Mar martin's the one who came with... up with that sorry yeah martin it's implemented it. all right and it's part cool. of Gath. i will talk yeah. to him about that on Wednesday. Yeah. Ooh. Also, ask him for some clarification of what clef is exactly. It, the mm -hmm. way that they describe it is that it's like an ecosystem composability aspect in which they um, exposes a tiny external uh, API that allows geth to essentially be expanded. Anyways. Okay. I'll ask him. Yeah. It, it allows hey, for ben, integration clef, to dude? actual... What is this, bro? What is this? All right, yeah. cool. So what? And do you there's another cool thing that basically extends the core functionality of Geth as well, um, and that's for allows for programmatic signing of transactions. So they have this ability that you don't actually have to have an unlocked Geth node in order to sign transactions. It actually allows you to write a JavaScript rule file that will run whatever, uh, whenever a request arrives and can decide to auto-confirm, auto-reject, or forward the request for manual confirmation. And this is a lot better than essentially like unlocking a geth node and hoping no one discovers it <laughs> uh, when you want to essentially um, be able to um, have certain types of transactions pre-signed. 
kind of curious what goes into that file. Um, mostly because uh, you still need to sign, right? So how does that signature happen if it's not an unlocked node, right? So the way it says is Clef solves this via an encrypted key value store in an uh-huh. ingenious rule engine, exclamation mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Okay. That's, uh, that's I guess definitely... I will hash that out on Wednesday as well. Um, yeah, how they actually do that, like the actual yeah. way they do that is really interesting. Um, I would love to see how it compares to something like um, Grid Plus's Lattice. Uh-huh. Um, because the lattice essentially has a um, their own very interesting way for allowing uh, pre-signed or pre-approved smart contract logic to run on the lattice um, because it's a secure compute environment. Since it's like built into a tamper-proof mesh, you could essentially run code on it that says that the uh, key in the lattice itself can sign these types of transactions and then you could essentially write a javascript file um, that has rules that decide what is pre-approved in terms of signatures so that you could for example pay for your uh, electricity using spot prices in their specific case because it falls under that type of pre-approved transaction structure Um, it's going to so, be interesting how they implemented it within a geth node. I'm actually really interested. Yeah, it, it seems like they, they do sort of like keep your password like like there. Like it's in the clef database. So it's not unlocked like constantly, but clef is doing the gatekeeping for your site. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. That makes more sense. Um and uh okay, cool. Cool. Oh, they've added um, an ultra light client. Yep, that was the last point that I wanted to talk about. Um, the ultra light client essentially replaces proof of work validation with the verification of digital signatures of um, trusted I can't read my own handwriting (laughs) of trusted servers so essentially there is a different security model Um, the security model is essentially Um, setting up something called checkpoint admins and the checkpoint admins are um, a the checkpoints are hard-coded into the release binaries which means that if you're running the most up-to-date version of geth then you can communicate with um, these uh, light client servers that provide you with updated checkpoints. Huh. So yeah, they're oracles, um, which you, yep. know, you need for this. It's, it's basically, it's basically kind of what Cloudflare was trying to do, really. Uh, right. Like, you know, but I, I think they still they're still sinking a vault here, um, but it's significantly less. Like, how much less is it? Like, I, I'm not, not able to determine that right now. They didn't give uh, metrics for it. They actually didn't include light clients in their metrics at all. So it's basically like allowing them to act as some sort of trustless or trusted intermediary, but you can pull as many trusted intermediaries as you want. Is that correct? So it's basically like using Cloudflare or Infura. Yes, but they go a couple steps deeper. Um because they are trying to make it so that um, the light servers uh-huh. could be untrusted. Oh. Right. So light clients can reach out to untrusted remote light servers, peer-to-peer, no centralized BS, and to ask uh-huh. them to return an updated checkpoint stored with an on-chain smart contract within an on-chain smart contract. Essentially, what they're saying is that you are uh, trusting boot nodes that are loaded into the smart con... uh, Sorry, loaded into the client itself, and they're essentially going to move from these trusted boot nodes to an actual on-chain smart smart contract model. 
and then oh. essentially you're going to connect with specific nodes and these nodes are um, going to have hard-coded checkpoints within them. I see. So there's going to be a published check... So they're literally publishing checkpoints to the chain. They will. They're moving to that. That's all... Yeah, okay. Oh, that's... actually... I think they've already implemented it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's the only way that kind yeah. of works. You know, they're on-chain yeah. checkpoints. Yeah, okay, that's cool. And then you can anybody can kind of sign up to be a checkpoint admin too. Um, it's out. It sounds like you just kind of like sign up, and then since everybody's kind of got to be trustless in this, and like they can all kind of like check each other's work. Then it should oh, be okay. So there's there's an added layer. So there are something called approved signers, and these approved signers aren't boot nodes per se. They're huh. people who can verify that the on-chain smart contract data is in fact correct. Huh. Yeah. And cool. essentially what they're saying is that like you are trusting uh the client software developers to a certain degree anyways right because of the actual uh, mechanism with which you find the network and you have boot nodes built in you yeah. essentially have something very similar except these boot nodes essentially are approved signers for light uh, for light client chain data and you get the data itself from a smart contract right yeah. And then you reach and yeah, it's that makes sense. And and honestly, like the optionality should be there. Like people, people might certain people might be like purists and you know want trust in the most platonic sense. You know, Plato, platonic, not you know. Anyway, um, they they want the most like like idealized trustless scenario. But to be frank with you, most applications don't give a crap about that to that that degree. Um, the cost to actually fraud the system is still pretty high. Um, right. And like you know, having these kind of options available, and yet still having the other options available, is fine, right? No yeah. problem. Um, so I want to talk about Puppeth too. So there's a Puppeth Explorer because I I've done like if you look on my medium, like I've got an article there for launching notes, which is really outdated, and I'm not supporting it anymore. Um, but there's there's a Puppeth Explorer. Um, so the Block Explorer. Is... Oh yeah, that didn't work uh, for. Uh, so it worked for mainnet nodes, but if I did a private network, it I could not have a block explorer using Puppeth. You okay? Well, you can now. Uh, okay. So Block Scout is a POA POA network open source block explorer, and. Uh -huh you can run it within a local development environment. Um, the only caveat is that you have to run a geth archive node. A f you Okay, the Puppet Explorer will need a fully synced geth archive node before it can boot up the Explorer web interface. Ooh. Well, that's not but, a big deal for a private network. If yeah, not at all. Um, I mean, my block times are always like, 1.5 second but still uh, like, so it grows a little <laughs> faster but uh yeah no uh, all right well, that's not too bad um okay cool so that's good so it works on a private node though huh? so i don't have to worry about like that was a big problem for me there is a caveat in which it says that this is fairly new um and Whatever. News, uh, yeah. Somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Guess we're somewhere. It's better than nothing. Um, right. So yeah, no, that's great. All right, cool. Thank you, Peter. Uh, oh, Gary Wrong is actually who I should be. Gary Wrong and Erat Badikov. Badikov. Mm -hmm. um, they were the ones who did it. That's awesome. As well as the people from POA Network for yeah, actually PR creating Network. an open source block explorer. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Um, cool. All right. Um, whoa, there's a new discovery protocol too. No, there isn't. It hasn't been shipped yet. <laughs> oh, it hasn't? No, it hasn't. They talk about, uh, they talk about it. Not yet. <laughs> okay. Soon right. though. Okay, cool. Yeah. But yeah, no, uh, I'm glad to see them doing so much work on this still. Like people are still need to use this stuff. It's not like, I don't know why anybody would ever complain 
like you said earlier, yeah. it's like, nonsense. You have the most widely used blockchain client, and people are arguing why people are still developing and improving on it. I don't know because it works. Yeah, <laughs> it works well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because you have billions of dollars worth of value literally depending on it. Um, I don't know. Those seem like good enough reasons to me. <laughs> yep. 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 I, I think, uh, I think they've, uh, I think they've done a great job here. This is the biggest update to a Gap client I've ever seen. Um, Agreed. Yeah. And honestly, like it it's might. It's a quality of life improvement too. Like that's the best part. It's not just like some, like, like, CLI improvements or anything like so things that I think a lot of people like don't like this is like really a huge quality of life improvement for it across the board 1.9.0 is just a massive quality of life improvement um, for developers and people using just Ethereum just interact with Ethereum like it's just it's just a big quality of life improvement I just want to thank them a lot because this is really good I mean we didn't even get into some of the monitoring tools that they added um but it's just it's 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 fantastic um just very 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 appreciative for all the hard work they give away for free yeah cool it's it's um it's going to be fun actually experimenting and trying these out on my own um and if any of these changes actually change the way i develop i work with a geth on a day-to-day basis it'll be exciting to see um, and I'll definitely share as soon as I develop new, better coding practices, then I'll definitely make them public. So <laughs> tune in and, uh, thanks again for joining me this week, Colin. No props, man. No props. All right. Yeah. Until next time. See ya.